There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if... What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing, environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Hey listeners, it's Mishi. Last week we released our 50th wartime diary. This week is Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Meital and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating wartime diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, so if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, israelstory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. there's one guy who knows more than almost anyone else in the world about Israeli walls, it's this man. Yes, yeah, certainly. It's uh, Charlie Yankos here, former Socceroo captain. Now, just in case you've never heard of the Socceroos. Well, the Socceroos are the Australian national uh, soccer team, um, named after the kangaroos, if you want to call it that, that we have in Australia. So it's the logical name having it as Socceroos. I'm not exactly sure what he means by, if you want to call it that. In any event, 
Nowadays, Charlie's a successful businessman in Sydney. That's correct, yeah, Sydney, Australia. But back in the 1980s, Charlie was the nightmare of soccer strikers, all the way from Argentina to Greece. He was a tall, fierce defender who spent most of his time tackling oncoming traffic. But you also had a specialty with free kicks. I wouldn't say specialty. I think I just had a little bit of luck with it more than specialty. So you might be wondering what a jovial Australian former footballer with a thunderous free kick is doing on our Israel Story episode. Well, Charlie, you know that you're um, a household name in Israel, right? Well, I've heard a couple of things, but it's been 30 years, so I don't know why. (laughs) I'll tell you why. It's because on Sunday evening, March 19th, 1989, Mr. Charles Teofilus Yankos entered the Israeli pantheon for good. You see, ever since the country's establishment in 1948, international sports associations didn't quite know what to do with Israel. Which continent did we belong to? Europe? Not really. Africa? That seemed off as well. Asia, maybe? Yeah, Asia could work. But before long, Muslim countries such as Turkey and Indonesia refused to play against Israel. Games in Iran got out of hand. And in 1986, FIFA, the International Football Federation, came up with a solution which, I should point out, didn't exactly make a ton of geographic sense. Henceforth, we'd compete in Oceania. Israel, of course, was thrilled. Let's just say that Fiji, Taiwan, and New Zealand are no Brazil or Italy. With this geographic anomaly, we actually stood a chance of qualifying for the 1990 World Cup. But first, we'd have to get past the only serious opponents in the area. And so, two days before Purim, 1989, the mighty Sakharuz came to Ramat Gan. Here's Yoram Arbel, the game's TV announcer. We felt like we might be able to get past the Australians. And that's why this game was so important. Because if we beat them, we'd be in an excellent position to qualify. Yoram is like the Israeli John Madden, or Vin Scully. He's been the voice of sports for the last 57 years. Ever since 1962. He's a constant fixture in Israeli living rooms, and has broadcast basically every single soccer game possible. Yes, it's, it's true. An entire generation was brought up listening to me. Anyway, that evening, the stadium was packed. More than 40,000 people were in attendance. The fans were very anxious. Everyone knew this game was live or die. Look, I remember it was very hostile in terms of the environment. 68 minutes in, one of the Australian players touched the ball with his hand, and Israel was awarded a penalty kick. Charlie, the Australian captain, tried uselessly to argue with the ref. Eli Ohana, my childhood idol, took the penalty shot. Israel won. Australia zero. The crowd went wild. But exactly five minutes later, the mood in Ramat Gan changed. 
Australia got a free kick about 25 meters away from the Israeli goal. Bonnie Ginsburg, our national goalie, arranged the human wall. Now, in soccer, like in life really, a wall is meant to keep things out. Look, the wall is just uh, an obstacle more than anything else. The whole idea is that the ball should not be going past that wall, right? But Charlie, you'll recall, had a secret power. I had this sort of air of confidence in terms of taking free kicks. And Yoram Arbel, the commentator, knew it. When the Australians got that free kick, I remembered that Charlie Yankos wasn't a sophisticated player who knew how to curl the ball. But he'd kick the ball with unimaginable power. And I said to myself, if he manages to get it past the wall, the wall has screwed up. Yoram even warned the viewers. We've got to pay attention to the right-hand side of the wall. Perhaps another player there would help. We have to be careful of Charlie Ankos. This distance is nothing for him. Charlie, determined and focused, ran to the ball. And that's when I saw the gap. And all I can remember was, I'm going to have a shot at this. Doesn't matter what happens. At the end of the day, I'm going to go for it. That bastard saw the corner of the goal. And he just went for it. He banged an amazingly fast ball. No one even had time to blink. And then I just went up there and hit it. And then was just lucky that it went in. Yoram was irate. That's what I was saying, he yelled. I told you so. And when it went in, I was unbelievably angry. More than I've ever been upset in a game in my whole life. In his despair, he spontaneously came up with what would soon become his most famous phrase. It came out of my gut, out of my kishkas. That's no way to build a wall. And the rage that I felt, and the feeling of frustration, what can I say? It caught on. It spread like wildfire. Yoram isn't exaggerating. For some reason, that seemingly mundane statement of his, uttered in anguish in the middle of a qualifying soccer match for the 1990 World Cup, entered the Israeli national consciousness. It's right up there with Herzl's Im Tirzu Enzo Agada. If you will it, it isn't a dream. Ben-Gurion's Anu Machrizim Bazot at the Declaration of the State. Anu Machrizim Bazot! Or Rabin's I'll Navigate, after winning the 1992 elections. Yeah, it's that pervasive. Somehow, this sentence rang true to the Israeli ear. It became an idiomatic phrase. And one day, when I exit this world, I'll leave behind this tiny little legacy in the shape of this short sentence, which really has become part of the Israeli lexicon. I asked Yoram why this phrase, out of the tens of thousands he's rendered over the years, 
went down in history. Look, by and large, it says that we are doing something wrong. And that's why it also spills over into other associations. When the government isn't working, it's, that's no way to do this, or that's no way to do that. We build something, nah, eh. Something's missing. We go for some bold political move. Eh. Eh. Somehow, we spoil it. If you could give Israelis some advice on how to build a wall, how to construct a better wall, what would you say? Yeah, don't, don't take the bricks away very quickly. Make sure they stay there for a while. How does it make you feel to be the wall expert of Israel? The wall expert. <laughs> Without an engineering background. Interesting. <laughs> oh, how funny. Hey, I'm Mishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. As you may know, we're in the middle of our wall miniseries, in which we're telling the tales of some of the country's most important walls. We've already been at the Kotel, where Abi Levy and his fellow paratroopers helped a Palestinian woman with an unusual past give birth in the middle of the Six-Day War. And last episode, we looked at the infamous separation wall, or security fence, and the ways people have both fought against it and taken advantage of its presence. And in our episode today, we shift gears to slightly more abstract walls. Walls, both new and old, that you might have a harder time finding on the ground. So welcome to The Wall, Part 3, The Invisibles. Charlie's goal remains a sore point for Boni Ginsburg, the Israeli national goalie in the 80s and 90s. In fact, when we reached out to him, he said that he simply couldn't bring himself to talk about it. But if Boni couldn't put together a wall robust enough to keep Charlie's soccer ball out, the hero of our next story was, let's just say, a bit more successful. He was one of Israel's youngest billionaires. He's received many distinguished awards, including Israel's highest honor, the Israel Prize. In fact, they even invented an entirely new category, just for him. But more importantly, he's unquestionably Israel's most accomplished wall builder. Act 1. Building a Wall Here's Yochai Meital. On the morning of July 3rd, my wife, Dafna, and I stepped out of an ultrasound clinic. We were holding an oversized manila envelope, and inside it, were the very first images of our third child, quickly growing inside of her. Like all Israelis, we're connected with our families, friends, colleagues, army buddies, etc., in an endless net of overlapping WhatsApp groups. We had been waiting for this day to share our happy news, and now that it had come, we decided that the easiest, most fun way to let everyone know at once was to send a single WhatsApp message. No words. Just a cute, grainy ultrasound image of the fetus's hand. We looked at each other, smiles on our faces, and pressed send. 
expecting, of course, a torrent of Mazaltovs to start flowing in. None came. After a few long minutes, a friend finally texted back. Can't see the image. My nephew was even more succinct, sending back a question mark. It soon turned out that WhatsApp, Instagram, and Facebook had all failed at the exact moment we had sent out our good news. None of our friends or family could see the picture. By the evening, the glitch had been resolved, and the news had spread far and wide. Now, I'll admit, this tech breakdown was at most a minor inconvenience to us. But it got me thinking. Just how much of my life relied on web-based platforms? And how vulnerable would I be if they malfunctioned, as they had, all at once? In the real world, a tree may fall and block a road. A phone line might accidentally be cut by a careless construction crew. But it's inconceivable that the entire physical infrastructure could simultaneously break down. A massive internet crash would pretty much bring my life to a halt. Facebook barely acknowledged there was any problem at all. When the services were back up, they simply issued a short and unsatisfying statement. Earlier today, some people and businesses experienced trouble uploading or sending images, videos, and other files on our apps and platforms. The issue has since been resolved, and we should be back at 100% for everyone. We're sorry for any inconvenience. My good news wasn't urgent by any means. It could wait until the evening. After all, there are another 25 weeks to go, give or take. But what if this had been an urgent message? What if it had been a matter of life and death? What, if anything, was being done to protect us against a worldwide collapse of electronic communications? Luckily, I knew just the man to ask. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Checkpoint's founder and CEO, Gil Schwen. Good morning, Las Vegas. Good morning, everyone. I was wondering, maybe as a first question, if you remember uh, your first computer. I actually never had the first computer. I never owned a computer at home. There was like a, an orthodox a community center and they had the first uh, programming class. The computer name there was, the, it doesn't exist anymore. The name was Sol 85. It was love at first sight. Gil grew up in a middle-class secular family in Jerusalem's laid-back neighborhood of Beta Kerem. His father was a computer engineer, back when computers were the size of a room. So from a young age, Gil was attracted to the subject. Every day, he would wait anxiously for the school bell, run to the bus and hustle to the community center, trying to get there early so he could steal some extra time exploring this mesmerizing new machine. From the moment his fingers touched the keyboard, his mind took off. I started working on a computer when I was 10. I got my first job when I was 12 or 13. That was a summer job, and I was a programmer in a company in Jerusalem. After a year and a half, Gil realized that I've sort of exhausted what I had to learn there. So at 14, he quit his job yeah. and got a new one at the Hebrew University. In the chemistry department, I was their system administrator. I wrote program, I maintained the computer system. Jealous of all the students around him, struggling with their C-sharp and multivariable calculus homework, he thought to himself, I can do this. So he walked up to the admissions building. So I knocked on their door, literally. I said, I want to learn here. I said, OK, but you're 14. They shooed Gil away. 
but he kept coming back. Every day I went there, I knocked on the door, I said, is there something new? Finally, they caved and let him sit in on some classes. By 15, Gil was already enrolled as a full-time computer science major. Sitting in front of a billionaire, I suddenly realized that I felt bad for him. It seemed as if he missed out on having a childhood. Our top skills are actually when we are 14 or 15. That's the time when we are mature enough to work hard. And if we are interested in something, we can dedicate all our resources to that. An adult person has to worry about, uh, you know, uh, making a living, about uh, starting a family, about preparing your own food. A kid that's 14 or 15, if they're excited about something, if they're interested about something, they can dedicate all their energy to that. By 18, Gil's carefree days were over. Like most Israelis, he was called up to the army. The IDF immediately realized that this nerdy kid with over six years of experience under his belt was a serious asset. He was assigned to the 8200 unit, Israel's equivalent of the NSA. My task was to connect two IP networks actually in the same building across the wall. It was around that time that he was exposed, right at its inception, to this new invention called the World Wide Web. The internet back then was an academic network. The web didn't exist, so I mean, the internet was about sending emails, but still it was a huge revolution in my mind. By 1989, 21-year-old Gil was out of the army. I looked at my world and uh, I said, that's going to be part of the future. Of course, I couldn't imagine how much the internet would take over our entire life. At least for me, it looks like this is going to change the world. But knowing exactly in which way it would change the world, and how to make money out of it, that was more difficult. So when I left the army, I actually had a bunch of ideas, uh, including the idea of Checkpoint. The idea of Checkpoint? Well, to try to explain, I'm going to take you on a brief journey more than 3,000 years back in time. A loosely bound group of tribes called the Israelites are an emerging power in the land of Canaan, but they can't seem to stop fighting one another. After a military leader from the tribe of Menashe, one Yiftach HaGiladi, brutally crushed a rebellion launched by the neighboring tribe of Ephraim, word got to him that survivors were hiding among his people. So Yiftach and his men set up the world's first firewall, or checkpoint, at a narrow crossing along the Jordan River. Yiftach's men had to act wisely. They couldn't start interrogating every single person at length. That would create a ruckus and likely alert the interlopers. So Yiftach came up with an ingenious plan. His men had just one simple and seemingly innocuous request of each passerby. Please say shibolet, the Hebrew word for a stalk of grain. Now, Bnei Ephraim had a characteristic lisp. They couldn't produce the shh sound. So anyone pronouncing shibolet as sibolet was killed on the spot. All told, over 42,000 people died that day. Fast forward to the early 1990s, in what would have been the territory of the Dan tribe. Gil was tinkering with a somewhat similar idea. A modern, and hopefully not as ruthless, version of a checkpoint, or firewall. It should be simple, it should be transparent, it should be fast, and make it secure. 
But he wasn't convinced anyone would buy it. So he scrapped the idea. Instead, Gil went to work as a software developer. It's entirely possible that that would have been his life. But then, a few years later, in 1993... The U.S. administration decided that the Internet would be an open network and suddenly every company can connect. And I said, that's my opportunity. The second companies and corporations plugged themselves in, their attention immediately turned to the question of how to keep people out. That's where I called uh, two of my friends and told them, you remember my idea from three years ago about network security? Gil and his pals, Marius Nacht and Shlomo Kremer, all handed in their notices, effective immediately. Because the internet is running very, very fast, we can do it part-time, we need to do it uh, 200% of our time. They pooled their savings and bought tickets to the first ever internet security conference in San Diego. When they got back, the three hunkered down in the Israeli version of the startup garage. Our garage was uh, Shlomo's grandmother apartment. Uh, it was a small apartment. We started in a tiny room next to the kitchen around April. A few months went by. We were sitting there all the summer programming. By July, the computers were overheating, so they expanded into the living room. In those early days, they didn't even have direct access to the web. We didn't uh, want to spend the money on direct internet connectivity that was too expensive. The first to invest in Checkpoint was BRM, an Israeli software company founded by Nir Barkat, who would later become the mayor of Jerusalem. His company bought... About half of Checkpoint for uh, approximately $250,000. With that influx of capital... They rented a small office, and the trio finally gave poor Shlomo's grandmother some space. On December 15th, 1993, Gil submitted a patent for what he called Stateful Inspection. It was the framework for an easy-to-install program that would keep networks safe. The software, compressed to a mere 1.5 megabytes, could be copied onto a floppy disk and mailed, snail mailed that is, anywhere in the world. Very quickly, it became apparent that Gil and his friends were onto something. Those floppy disks were flying off the shelf, and they signed a huge deal with Sun Microsystems. When we were less than one year already, our shareholders offered to buy us out and pay us a lot of money. Gil wasn't even 25, and now had the option of retiring as a multi-millionaire. Two weeks later, another investor comes and raises the offer. He turned him down, too. Growing in Jerusalem, regular family, I was always, uh, money was actually some, something frightening, something bad, uh, believing that uh, if you got too much money, something is wrong. My dream was always about building something, and it never stopped. Before long, Checkpoint was already established in the U.S. and expanding into other markets as well. In the first three years of Checkpoint, I really gave up everything that I have in life, and I really worked uh, literally 18 hours a day. It's not just the physical hours and so on. There is an emotional price that's very, very high when you have all the pressure on you and you have no guarantee that it will succeed. Gil's decision to reject the advice of dozens of savvy business experts and forgo millions up front paid off. Checkpoint's latest valuation is close to $19 billion dollars. It has captured and maintained control of a large percentage of the cybersecurity market. From three employees, the company grew to over 5,000, operating in 190 countries around the world. 
Its success is often cited as a catalyst for the Israeli startup revolution. But in truth, it could more accurately be described as a high-tech exodus. Usually Israelis are very good at startups, but much uh, slower or, or backwarded in, in running really big, big companies. And Checkpoint is a great success, one of the most successful Israeli companies. That's Ehud Barak. Former Prime Minister of Israel, Minister of Defense, and Commander of the Armed Forces also. And Barak is uniquely positioned to talk about the issue, because... At the age of 76, I found myself uh, founding a uh, cyber a company together with three younger people. As prime minister, he witnessed thousands of successful Israeli companies being bought out and moving their operations abroad, but not Checkpoint. The headquarters in Israel, and I'd like to think that it will stay like that forever. Gil and Checkpoint were one of the early players in the cybersecurity world. Today, there are many others vying for a piece of the estimated $150 billion pie. And almost all experts agree that the market is just growing. 26 years ago, when Gil got started, computers were not yet household items. And networks, well, they belonged mainly to big corporations. Today, as every house is linked up, and we're connected through our phones, cars, and appliances, cyber attacks are the fastest growing category of crime across the globe. It's a main challenge for, for the whole world right now. The threat is rising dramatically, especially the more sophisticated uh, attacks could make a huge, huge damage. Barak is right, of course. Israel is under constant cyber attack. This is a message to the foolish Zionist entities. We are coming back to punish you again. A lot of what's going on is an illusion. We think we are safe, we think we are protected, but when you look deeper and you see what's going on beneath the surface, you should start to be very scared. That's Noam Rotem. I'm an Israeli hacker and activist. His job is to expose holes in the wall. Getting into their systems and just uh, pointing and laughing. I met up with Noam to try to understand the extent of the threat. What exactly could hackers do? A lot, it turns out. Noam himself has infiltrated governmental agencies. The Ministry of Education, I got their data four times already. He's hacked into banks and utility companies. Israeli prison service, the Ashdod port. Israel's largest harbor. We had access to everything. Who's walking where, uh, on which shipment, on which container. Hackers can steal your money, stall your motor. Basically, I could log in and shut down your car. Create food shortages. Take out all the industrial refrigerators in a country. Breach dams. You can break the pumps, and then the pressure builds, and it collapses. And as Gil told me, even shut down the electric grid. That's more than doable to take down the electricity grid. It's very possible from every perspective. These attacks can happen very, very fast, much faster than conventional attack, and they can create the mass-scale damage in a way that conventional weapons actually cannot do. Apocalyptic predictions aside, just consider the monetary loss created by cybercrime. Just of uh, theft of um, uh, IP, of intellectual property, uh, which is uh, numbers like $200 billion annually and so on, with, um, in many cases, irreversible damage. In fact, 
Some estimates say total losses reach up to $1.5 trillion a year. 90-something percent of all the attacks today are just for financial gain. That's Maya Horowitz. I'm director for threat intelligence and research here in Checkpoint. Maya leads a team whose job it is to investigate cyber threats in order to better understand this new battlefield. Like Gil, she's X-8200, Israeli military intelligence. In Israel, it's unique because we have a, a general draft. Everyone joined the army. So basically, the, the cyber units have an access to the best fresh young brains. And some of them are natural hackers. And Israel has a uh, almost natural comparative edge on these issues because we face these challenges of cyber uh, for many years for security reasons, both defensive and sometimes offensive. A200 and units like it are part of this pipeline fueling high-tech in Israel. Though Maya is a civilian now, she's still very much in the role of an intelligence officer, collecting data on the enemy, whomever that might be, so that better defensive measures can be devised and implemented. And that makes sense. Conventional warfare has traditionally been in the hands of the state. After all, governments, armies, and police forces are the ones we look to to keep us safe. But today, it's actually global companies like Checkpoint who are replacing the state in that role. Because the new cyber enemies, they can be anywhere. It can be sitting next building, it can be sitting in Africa, it can be sitting in... Europe, and there is nothing in common to them. Some of them are professional and developers, and some of them are uh, amateurs that wants to make money and take tools from the internet. It's very hard, if not, I wouldn't say impossible, but it's very hard to track the people and see who's behind cybercrime. Maya took me around and had members of her team show me some cases they were working on. They see payment and credit card fraud, extortion through malware. This is definitely the biggest... Uh, going on right now. IP theft, silent network takeovers, and more. And this is their Indonesian island that they're living in. Checkpoint tracks these criminals and can often even get their name and location. It's called Gorontalo, if I'm not mistaken. You can see, you can just see their faces. The criminals largely act with impunity. This is the logo, by the way. This is Oded Awaska, one of the investigators on Maya's team. While we were chatting, a group of cheerful Indonesian hackers on his screen were gobbling down a cake adorned with the words, We are not hacker. Actually, it was more like they were stuffing the cake into each other's faces in this impromptu food fight. The video was an unusual bonus for Odit. Not only did he uncover the identity of the cyber criminals he was hunting down, but he found a little party clip lurking on the web to go along with it. With a drone and editing, I mean, it's, 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 it's a pretty good video. I, I, it made us both smile. You can check it out too, we'll post it on our website. But those who laugh last, as they say, are the island hackers. So do these Indonesian hackers know that you're onto them? No, they do not know yet. I'm guessing that when this story is going to be published, um, then they are going to be aware of that we're onto them. Question is, what are they going to do after it? They just can say, okay, so they were on us. No biggie. No, no Indonesian government is going to chase us and, and put us to prison or jail or, or a, even a sentence. It's not just Indonesia, Maya explained to me, who turn a blind eye. Cyber attacks are probably a large part of the national income to Nigeria. 
Some countries take it one step further. Sometimes there are state-sponsored attacks um, that just try to get money. And we see it mostly coming from, from North Korea, where there are groups that do both espionage uh, and just money theft. Huh. And they're successful? Yes, many of them are successful in getting tens of millions of dollars. From her perch at Checkpoint's headquarters, Maya has a bird's-eye view on the cyber armies being amassed around the world. Wherever you see you know, a rivalry between uh, nations, and you see it in politics, uh, you also see it on the cyber landscape. But actually, on the cyber landscape, you also see, you know, the silent wars, <laughs> those that don't make the news, those that no one talk about, no one is aware of, um, but still even uh, friends, even countries that are friends would also want to have information on one another. Can you like, give examples to that? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I had to try. <laughs> After uh, ten years in uh, military intelligence, I, <laughs> I can keep my mouth shut. <laughs> but even without her naming names, it's clear that these silent wars are fueling a cyber arms race. The NSA, the National Security Agency of the U.S., they are probably the largest cyber uh, organization. They developed an amazing toolkit to penetrate almost every system. Two years ago, in 2017, this toolkit, called Eternal Blue, was leaked to the internet by hackers identifying as Shadow Broker. And that's the scary part, that we all need to defend ourselves against technology that's being developed by the best people. Widespread access to the cyber equivalent of WMDs. By definition, attack is much easier than defense. If you are the defender, you have to, to protect every conceivable access. It doesn't matter where you are attacked, if the attack is successful and penetrates and can travel easily within your inside intestines, uh, kind of, so to speak, digital intestines. I asked Barak what needs to be done in order to defend ourselves. My vision is that cyber will follow the, the example of uh, the human immune system, which is really extremely sophisticated, with the capacity to, to identify any foreign bit as not belonging to self and have different means of attacking them and producing the right uh, antigens to attack and then keeping the memory, the lessons from the previous attack. So if something similar comes, it makes a shortcut into the right solution. And I think that should be the source of inspiration for development of uh, cyber defense. And uh, attack will be like the worst kind of viruses that are, you know, the metaphor of viruses is extremely relevant to you. Back in the early 90s, Gil had a vision to make the internet a safe place. With time, that challenge keeps getting harder, but also more lucrative. Even though Gil has personally made it in the world, his net worth is estimated at $3.7 billion, making him the eighth richest person in Israel. He doesn't own any yachts, jets, or Lamborghinis. For me, that was never the dream. I mean, I've, I've never... Uh, very few things in our lives, we actually build new things. And in computers, you can build something new every day. That's what attracts me today and attracted me back then to be, to be a programmer. Gil still arrives at the office early 
and puts in long work days. It's clear he has tons of energy and fight left in him. The battle is never ending. There's always criminals. They're always there and they always become creative. The number of vulnerabilities that we have in our infrastructure is just going up. Of course, the frightening threats Gil is talking about are not new. I mean, we've all witnessed the dangers of hacking and cyber-terrorism, from tampering with elections all the way to the delayed sending of ultrasound images. But somehow, sitting by Gil's side in Tel Aviv, this middle-aged billionaire computer geek made me feel, if just for a brief moment, completely safe. This is a message to the foolish Zionist entities. We are coming back to punish you again. We'll take down your servers, your banks, and your public institutions. We will hunt you down. We are anonymous. We do not forgive. We do not forget. Yochai Mital. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So if Gil and his team are working on the walls of tomorrow, our next story takes us to the walls of yesterday. Or really, long before yesterday. Act 2, Lenny at the Gate. On November 17, 1957, a 49-year-old New Yorker, we'll call him Lenny, opened his Sunday Morning Times. And there, at the top of page 19, just above a huge Saks Fifth Avenue ad, he stumbled upon an intriguing headline. Digging in Israel, it read, supports Bible. As he skimmed down the page, Lenny learned that Igael Yadin, Israel's Indiana Jones slash Karl von Clausewitz, had unearthed a massive city gate built by none other than King Solomon himself. <laughs> The gate and adjacent wall were discovered at Chatzor, an ancient city north of the Sea of Galilee. Chatzor, it is the number one site as far as the Bible is concerned. That's Amnon Bento. We have artifacts, we have buildings, we have strata of, I'll just give names for the time of Joshua, time of the judges, Solomon, uh, Ahab, Jeroboam II, so if you want a reflection of the biblical story, come and look at our gates. Amnon has led the excavations at Chatzor for the last 30 years. And as you can tell, he's quite fond of the place. We are the center of everything. Yeah, we are. It's not funny. In the Bronze Age, he says, it was... Like the New York of the time, if you wish. Like the Paris of the time. Amnon, who is nearly 85 now, is a celebrated archaeologist. 
Just this year on Yom Ha'atzmaut, he was awarded the Israel Prize in archaeology. But back in the late 50s, when the gate was discovered, he was just a young undergrad, basking in the glory of his famous IDF chief of staff turned professor, Major General Yadin. Ah, a picture? You want to see a picture? Uh, Ah, just a minute. Where do I have a picture? Amnon went to his bookcase and pulled out a large volume. He flipped through the pages and found a group photo of the delegation. This is the team working at Chatzor, 1958. Where are you? I am here. That's me. You were blonde? 60 years ago. Yes, I was blonde. I was blonde. And I had a lot of hair. So... Uh, what was the question again? Anyway, back in New York, good old Lenny was ecstatic. He was very excited about the state of Israel in those days. That's his son, Alex. He actually was there during the war in 48. And since, Lenny had been back a bunch of times. Oh yeah, he went back again and again. He just loved it, he loved the spirit of the place. You could say that uh, my father was a Zionist, absolutely, yeah. So as he read through that New York Times article, his imagination went wild. He loved the stories of the Bible. He spoke Hebrew very well. He read Hebrew very well. He knew the prayers. He had gone to synagogue all his life. So he knew all the stories. And now his creative juices were really flowing. By the time he finished the piece, he was so touched, so inspired, that he had made up his mind. He was going to write an opera about the Solomonic Gate of Chatzor. Now, this wasn't as random as it might sound. Because, you see, Lenny, well, he was actually better known by another name. In 1957, Leonard Bernstein was a rising star. Things were happening so fast. That very same year, not only was he named the music director of the New York Philharmonic, but West Side Story, the musical he composed, premiered on Broadway. I like to be in America, okay by me in America. Everything's free in America, for us more free in America. Bernstein wrote to Yadin and asked to come visit Chatzor. Yadin, himself pretty excited by the celebrity attention and the prospect of a world-class opera being written about his site, immediately accepted. So, lo and behold, in the summer of 1958, the famous yet giddy maestro schlepped up to the far north of Israel to observe his newly unearthed musical muse. There are very, very few of us who were at Chatzor at the time. And uh, I'm one of the few in my old age. So I remember because it was a big story. It was a big story. I don't know how much we knew about the importance of Leonard Bernstein at the time, but we knew that an important composer, da 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 da, was about to visit Chassel. And everybody wanted to see who and what. And we didn't know who Leonard Bernstein was at the time. I'm sorry. But Bernstein had done his homework. He knew, no doubt, exactly how important gates were in the walled cities of the ancient Near East. If you have a wall all around the city, how shall people come in and out? 
So you have a major gate. That's where everything takes place. That's where the king sits and, and, and receives guests. This is where judgment takes place, trades. All these things take place at the gate. So the gate is really the focus of everything that happens in the city. The city gate. Given all that, in his mind, Bernstein must have imagined something grandiose. An Israelite version of Paris's Arc de Triomphe, Berlin's Brandenburg Gate, or Rome's Arch of Constantine. You know, something that would befit his soon-to-be-written epic opera. So, on the day of the visit, an eager Yadin welcomed the maestro to his kingdom and showed him around the excavation. First, he took him to Ahab's storage rooms. Then, he showed him Yavin's palace, the Bronze Age temple, the city's casement wall. And finally, they arrived at the wondrous Solomonic Gate, supposedly built 3,000 years ago by an omnipotent king with a thousand wives. And at that dramatic moment, when the great creator came face to face with his ancient inspiration, Mr. Leonard Bernstein of Manhattan, New York, learned something fundamental about Levantine archaeology. He learned that you need a lot of imagination. You know, we archaeologists, we see two stones and it's a house, and three stones and it's a palace, and four stones it's a gate. Normal people don't see this. As the animated Yadin pointed here and there and waxed poetic about biblical kings, all Bernstein could see was a few old stones strewn on the ground. There was very little of the gate to be seen. Only the foundations could be seen at the time. This is a gate. Everybody can see this. Not everybody. Every first-year archaeologist can see that this is a gate. But, you know, normal people, when they hear a gate, they want to see something big, enormous. And in those days, you couldn't. Bernstein was crushed. His muse, it turned out, was no more than a pile of rubble. Needless to say... He was very disappointed. <laughs> I came all the way for this. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. The opera, you can imagine, was never composed. Not a single note was ever written. What do you imagine an opera about Chatzor would have been like? I have absolutely no idea. I don't know. Would you go see it? I don't go to see operas anyway. I don't like opera. <laughs> I really don't. I think you can say everything you need and don't have to sing it. But despite what Amnon says, one of the most amazing things about creating a podcast is that sometimes, occasionally, you can alter history. So it is with great pleasure, dear Israel Story listeners, that we bring you a sneak peek of the world premiere of Leonard Bernstein's never-written operatic hit about King Solomon's, let's just say, slightly more successful building project on Jerusalem's Mount Moriah. The most beautiful mountain I've ever seen Moriah It's more than a mountain, Moriah So I'll build the most fabulous temple that's ever been On Moriah, King Solomon's shrine on Moriah 
is dedicated with love to the late and great Trude Dotan, the grand dame of Israeli archaeology, who first told it to me when I was a little boy. And that's it. The Wall, Part 3. You can hear all our previous episodes on our site, israelstory.org, or by searching for Israel Story on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you usually get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. Now, you hear this at the end of every possible podcast, but do us a favor, go to iTunes, rate us, and leave a comment. Apple's intricate world of algorithms will do the rest, and we'll get to many, many new ears. And while we're on the topic, if you like Israel Story, send a link to a friend, download it on your mom's phone, talk about it to your neighbor. One of our biggest goals for this season is to reach new audiences. So if you can, if you're so inclined, do your share and spread the word. If you want to sponsor episodes of Israel Story and reach a large and committed audience of people in 192 countries around the world, email us at sponsor at israelstory.org. Thanks to Revitaliov, Lawrence Bull, Rafi and Danny Schaffman, Yotam Michael Yogev, Nili Priel, Shira Kaplan, and Shlomo Meital for guiding us through the world of Israeli cybersecurity startups. Thanks also to Israel Finkelstein, Neil Silberman, Avner Goren, Gidon and Nechama Forster, and Shlomit Bechar, the creme de la creme of Israeli archaeology. And to Sarah Avery and Latif Nasser for editorial advice. All the original music throughout the episode was written, arranged, and performed by our wonderful Israel Story band, Dotan Mushonov and Ari Wenig together with Ruth Danon, Eden Jamshid, and Roni Wagner-Schmidt. The Wall miniseries is based on our latest live show. Thanks to everyone who made our most recent North America tour possible, including Sutton Place Synagogue, our friends in Toronto, Ben Moraine and Hannah Cohen of NIF Canada, Peter Fellhaber, Lynn and Aubrey Kaufman, and Alyssa and Gil Palter. And our hosts in San Diego, Brian Garrick, Mindy Shipan, Rachel Levine, Chris Phillips, and Chris Renda. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, 
The Public Radio Exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff is Yochai Meital, Zev Levi, Shai Satran, Roy Gilron, Maya Kosover, Joel Shupak, Yoshi Fields, Judah Kaufman, Hannah Barg, Ari Wenig, Sharon Rappaport, and Rotem Tzin. Scarlett DeGene, Paula Lem, Yair Farkas, Harry Sultan, Rebecca Carroll, Kayla Levy, and Anna Korea have been our wonderful production interns this year. I'm Ishi Harman, and we'll be back very, very soon with the final episode of The Wall. And the combination of feeling connected to that place and feeling degraded there as a woman was too much. It's like the definition of an abusive relationship. So, till next time, shalom shalom, and yalla bye.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.